Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 211 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of her generation's best and one of my favorite actresses, Kristen Ritter. The 36-year-old former model has been making her way in the business for 17 years. She first won widespread notice in 2009 when, for one unforgettable season of AMC's landmark drama series Breaking Bad, she played Jane Margolis, a heroin addict dating Aaron Paul's Jesse Pinkman. That led to an opportunity to star in a show of her own for the first time as the eponymous character on ABC's comedy series Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, which had a loyal following but was canceled after just one season. It wasn't long, though, before Ritter rebounded in a major way, namely by landing the role of the titular superhero-slash-private investigator on Netflix's drama series Jessica Jones, the first season of which was released in 2015 and won a Peabody Award, and the second season of which dropped back on March 8th. It is well worth taking the time to watch, first and foremost because of Ritter's incredibly nuanced portrayal of a trauma survivor who is haunted by her past but remains unwaveringly committed to helping others avoid similar situations. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our TV critic, who is also the president of the Television Critics Association, Daniel Feinberg. No relation, unfortunately. He's IE and I'm EI, but we're still very happy to have him. Dan, thanks for joining us. I would have to say that this felt inevitable, and (laughs) what I'm truly looking forward to is the day that the two of us can sit down with Big Little Lies producer Greg Feinberg for a a Feinberg roundtable. How does he spell it? He's F-I-E, and also no relation to either of us, I guess, so... well. This is the ultimate crossover it episode. Is, it is so. the Frost-Nixon of yes. our time, Feinberg, Feinberg. <laughs> I wanted to speak with you about the TV landscape at the outset of this new Emmy season because there's a lot going on. And in fact, more than ever, if we look at just the number of scripted series, I think it's approaching 500 this season. That's <laughs> really like peak TV. The peak gets higher every year. Just logistically for you as the television critic, how do you begin to approach that? How do you know where to even start week by week is the easiest answer is there are still premiere dates for things of course sometimes those premiere dates mean 13 episodes Mm -hmm. of a netflix show and so that (laughs) that's a big mountain to climb right there but the answer is it's still week to week and also it really finally has happened and this was not the case honestly until this year where there are shows that I'm just not getting to, shows that I know are perfectly good shows, shows that people in some cases genuinely love that I, I just can't 
get to. So if 25 people on Twitter tell me that this season of high maintenance has been fantastic, I completely and totally believe them. I'm sure it's been <laughs> phenomenal. I just can't do it. It's it's too hard. So the answer is you try to tread water as best you can and you wait for the slow weeks, but there are no slow weeks anymore. No. And so when you write a review, how many episodes on average have you seen at the time you write the review? It genuinely depends. In the case of the Netflix shows, it really could be all 13 episodes of a season. And that's a lot of screeners. Basically, the way that people out in the world now dedicate their weekends to streaming a Netflix show and binging the entire thing. I've done it. I've just done it two weeks before, but it's the same thing. My weekends belong these days to Netflix, whereas with a network show, it's probably closer at mid-season to three or four episodes of a drama, four or five or six episodes of a comedy. But in the fall, it can sometimes be just one, which is the worst of all possible situations, is trying to review a TV show off of just a network pilot. That's what I'm wondering, because I mean, often even some of the great shows have had mediocre starts. And so that might just by necessity be all that you see. Do you ever go back and revisit a show that you've reviewed, you know, the first episode of and that was it? Whether I do it sometimes in writing or not is a little bit questionable. Whether I do it watching the shows all the time. I I will give every show as many episodes as the network sends me up front. And then I'll usually watch an episode or two afterwards. And sometimes with a comedy, I'll give them three or four or five. I'm, I'm usually much more willing to, because with a half hour, I can always yeah. make the time. If it's a drama that I know I'm not liking, a second episode is sometimes all it's, it's going to get. a lot, yeah. Now, it seems that maybe because there are so many shows out there, your average viewer seems to increasingly appreciate shows that require a limited commitment. In other words, not... 22 episodes or whatever of a broadcast series, which is what most of history has entailed, but maybe eight with something like Smilf on Showtime, or I guess even better yet, some of these truly actual limited series like A Looming Tower or whatever this season might be. I wonder if you think it might also explain the resurgence of these Twilight Zone-like anthology series where you basically can watch any installment and watch them in any order and not be out of the loop. I mean, right now at Black Mirror on Netflix and Electric Dreams more recently on Amazon, these people are loving these, I think. And the thing with Black Mirror is it's something where you could go in and watch any episode of it, and yet people still treat it as a binge yes. experience, which is, to me, kind of insane, because you get to the end of the first weekend after a Black Mirror episode has come out, and everyone on Twitter has ranked and re-ranked every <laughs> single episode over and over again, and all I can do is go, okay, well, I can usually watch like one or two Black Mirror episodes that are sitting, both because of how dark it is and right. also the similarities begin to seep in if you watch more than one, and yet people binge it, but... I truly appreciate the smaller run TV shows, something like The End of the Effing World on Netflix, where I can tell people that sucker is eight episodes. None of them is longer than 24 minutes. The first episode is 18 minutes. That is the easiest binge in the world. And I feel like it's gotten to the point where we're sort of categorizing the ease of yeah. a binge. And so that's an easy binge, whereas The Crown is a fun binge, but it's a dense well, binge. Well, even Twin Peaks, the thing is I'm trying to catch up here <laughs> and I got to tell you, I'm so overwhelmed at the moment because we've got, in a few weeks, Kyle McLaughlin coming on to do this, and I actually have never seen the original oh. Twin Peaks, so I've been going back to try to do that, and yet that's something like 22-hour commitment between seasons one and two, 
It's massive. And then I actually have to watch the new one that we're going to be talking about, which is also more than a dozen by I, I And you have to watch Fire Walk With Me, which is essential to the new season. You can't skip Fire Walk With Me, even if you feel like you kind of want to, because it actually is very integral. So there's two more hours. Yeah, that's complicated. <laughs> no, you can't, you can't fall behind. It's absolutely impossible to fall behind on anything anymore. You have to stay afloat as best you can or else you're, you're lost. And, and to your point, I mean, I think one of many great things about Atlanta is I think I watched that on one flight the entire first season because what are we talking like 22 minute episodes right 22 minute episodes they go by fast they're mostly to some degree self-contained and they're really good you know those are the best shows it's part of why I am always able to stay on top of my half hour shows and I can fall seven eight nine episodes behind on a random network drama I'm I think 12 episodes behind on Fox's Lethal Weapon now and then it becomes an issue of you know cutting bait at a certain point but I'm not there yet (laughs) because I have a big DVR, but half-hour shows I can stay on top of, and the ability to binge an entire season of a half-hour show on a coast-to-coast flight is really a nice thing. Absolutely. Well, you are also, as I mentioned, the president of TCA. Can you explain for anyone who's listening and and has not heard of it what that is and also how your members generally feel about the Emmys? (laughs) The TCA is a group of 240. 40-ish as of this exact moment, though we're in the middle of a membership vetting process, so it could go up a little bit more, member organization of the nation's TV critics and reporters of television. So from all of the major newspapers, websites, et cetera, et cetera, THR has four or five members. You know, most of your major publications will have four or five members. Some have maybe only one or two. And we basically meet twice per year in either Pasadena or the Beverly Hilton and Beverly Hills. And for two plus weeks, we have summer or winter press tour with all of the networks bringing their shows and presenting them to us for the new season. Now, as to the Emmys, I think that there's always been this sort of we know better approach. And I think that the Emmys have come closer as the years have passed to kind of getting some of the best television represented. But I think there's always a we know better. And so we like to point to the TCA awards, which we give each year as a somewhat smarter, not always, but somewhat smarter version of what the best on television happens to be. So on Emmy nominations, mornings or Emmy nights in recent years, have you gotten particularly pissed off seeing certain shows getting included and other shows getting snubbed? Are there specific examples where you have most disagreed with the TV Academy, either including something or leaving something out? I think that the TV Academy is prone to a certain complacency. And so something like a modern family can make the cut every single year. And I'm one of those people who still watches Modern Mm -hmm. Family and who thinks that for three or four seasons, it was a good and somewhat innovative network TV show. It was a good show. It's virtually unwatchable at this point and yet I do every single week it's unbearable how bad that show is most weeks and yet it is still nominated for Emmys every single year so that pisses me off but then there are all of the the little sort of niche critical favorites you know we always point to okay The Wire won zero Emmys in its entire run it's the greatest show ever made that's ridiculous. Right. The Leftovers has been by many reckonings the best show on TV for like the past three or four years basically no Emmy recognition. Something like Halt and Catch Fire, never going to make it onto the radar. So there are always shows like that that are so far below or above the radar. You know, I'm just never going to feel annoyed with Emmy voters for not knowing what Rectify is. (laughs) It just happens to be a magnificent show that they should know what it is. But But the one that seems like they know they should like and yet can't fully get on board with that you guys love is year in and year out the Americans. They finally nominated it for 
best drama series, I guess, two years ago. Now they've got one last chance this season. I know it's just starting to roll out, and I think you said the early indicators are that it's very good, as has been the case up to this point. So basically the question is, will they seize this final opportunity to, at the very least, nominate it? It's hard to imagine this particular group giving it the award over Game of Thrones or Handmaids or something, but why is it that there is such a divide, maybe slightly narrower than at the beginning now, but between critics and TV Academy members with the Americans? I don't know on that one, and that's one that's always been a minor mystery to me because it's not an inaccessible show. It's not like Rectify or Leftovers, where if you tell people what it is, they go, oh God, I can never watch that. (laughs) It's a spy show. It's It's not anything other than that. It's an 80s spy show with fantastic music, and it stars Felicity. I mean, for heaven's sakes, (laughs) if you can't make people watch that, what are you doing? And yet, FX has had trouble making that show into a hit. And so there's that, and then similar trouble making Academy voters recognize it. And then You know, the show did have a somewhat down season last season, and that was really bad timing because there were those big new shows that came rushing in, the Westworlds and the Handmaid's Tales and whatever, and so it was just easy to push it aside. I think the nostalgia factor, Emmy voters do like that. You know, at the end of, say, Friday Night Lights' run, it's finally started getting a couple of those nominations and then a win or two, and that was important. It will be a very sad thing if the Americans goes its series run and neither Matthew Reese nor Carrie Russell wins. And so I would like to see it. And in the early episodes, they're both tremendous again. So come on. Nostalgia is everywhere. Let's get nostalgic about the fact this is a great show that hasn't gotten enough recognition other than a couple wins for Margot Martindale, several of which weren't really deserved as much as I love Margot Martindale. Plus, when has being... A Russian spy ever been more timely? <laughs> it's true, and yet you know some people say it's too close to the real world. It's right. too close to the headlines, and that was what was keeping people from watching it last year. No, I, I hope that Emmy voters will get their heads around recognizing the show this year just as a as a send off. So, what's the show that TV critics and Emmy voters are most on the same page about that they just absolutely love? Would it be like last year? This is us. I would say Handmaid's Tale even more because Handmaid's Tale was the TCA program of the year last year and I voted for it and it was the Emmy winner for drama series last year. So that was that was a rare alignment of those two things. And that's a pretty obvious one. Now, This Is Us is even rarer because it's a place where actually Emmy voters, critics and audiences all align. And that's, you know, that for heaven's sakes. Well, there's really nothing else like that at the moment, right? Because Empire gets huge ratings. Now The Good Doctor gets huge ratings. Neither of those are particularly well-reviewed, right? Empire was a TCA award winner for Program of the Year its first year. Program of the Year being an award that we always like to mention is not necessarily the best show of the year, but it's the show that is sort of the the show of the year. And so that was how that one won that year. I think Game of Thrones is a a worthwhile example because we don't talk about its ratings because HBO sort of plays a little shell game with the ratings, but the ratings are absurdly high. We know that everyone watches Game of Thrones. Broadcast shows have just inherently the largest core audience, obviously, that people don't have to pay to, you know, have a streaming service or whatever, so that everybody gets those. Why is it then that so few broadcast shows are spoken of in the same breath as the great ones of cable and streaming? I mean, are there any that deserve to be in those conversations? I think you're pretty passionate about Speechless, I know, as one. 
Any others that are like that? I think there are more comedies that deserve to be spoken of in the same breath as the cable comedy. So I think that Speechless is a good example of a show that I think is as good as anything on cable in the sense of what it does. It doesn't do the same thing as Atlanta or Better Things. So comparing them directly is pointless, but it's a great comedy. Blackish has had several seasons where I thought it was as good as any comedy on network TV. The Good Place is another example. So you've got a handful there. The, several of the Fox shows, Last Man on Earth, I think its pilot, for example, is as good a comedy episode as there is. It was nominated for several Emmys. And then you look at things like The Simpsons and Bob's Burgers. Those are still spectacular shows in their own right as well. But on the drama side, it's been a long time since there's been a network drama that legitimately could compete. So that's why This Is Us yeah. is is notable to the degree that it is, because otherwise you go to The Good Wife. Right. And that was the last one before that. Yeah. And even that's a show that I don't feel like was really ever truly on the same level as the cable dramas. It was just close enough that you could recognize it. Well, the only other network drama that's even being spoken of as having a shot in hell this year of joining This Is Us is the Good Doctor, which does massive ratings for ABC. Is it also a, a good show? Its aggregated score, I think, on Metacritic or whatever is pretty bleak. It's a decent show, but it is, it's really and truly a network medical procedural. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a bad thing. House was a great show mm -hmm. when it started off, probably for like five or six years. It was a great show. But that was already, I mean, even though that was only 15 years ago, that was an entirely different era in television. So is it in the top like 25 or 30 of dramas on TV. No, it's not even close really? to that, I don't think. <laughs> on the other hand, I think Freddie Highmore is, is very, very good. Yeah. And I think one could make arguments that he might belong in like a top 15 or mm -hmm. something in a category. But I don't think you could really make a good argument that he belongs in the top five or six of a category. But I guess for, for the TV Academy members, that's not even the way they are going to look at it because like everybody, you can only see so much. So is it a show that they're likely to check out now because of all the buzz around it? You know, you can only vote from the pool of what you've seen. So I wonder if it's, you're absolutely right, that maybe it doesn't deserve to get any major nominations, but I wonder if it might actually pull it off. I think that High War is the only chance, and I think that even that would be a long shot. I just don't think as a show it's good enough. And if they're going to look for something popular, You've got Game of Thrones still right. out there, and then This Is this Us is just such a, a juggernaut, and such a juggernaut in so many categories. So with This Is Us, you're talking about nominating it potentially for you know two, three, four yeah. acting nominations and all of that, whereas The Good Doctor is pretty high more. Or it's bust. kind of funny because for years, I think, I don't know if you were one of them, but a lot of critics were screaming about trying to get Freddie Highmore attention for Bates Motel, right? And nobody would give it the time of day. I don't think it ever got a single... Uh, Vera Farmiga got nominated one year. She did? Okay. Yeah, well, he, he did not, he right? He did not. And he definitely, and especially in the last couple seasons where when the show got genuinely good. When, yeah. And Vera Farmiga was nominated when the show was really kind of bumpy at first. Yeah. And a lot of people just tuned out because... Once it wasn't Psycho, it wasn't Psycho. Right, right. And then by the time it got to be a really good show in its last season and a half, it was just too late. You can't you can't get people to tune back in, which was part of the problem on Leftovers, yeah. which is a show that really just alienated a lot of viewers in its first season. And even if you told them the second season is the best thing on TV, you couldn't get them to watch Halt and Catch Fire. It started a little slow. I think it started well, but it did start slow. You can't tell people oh, this gets good in season two. Right. Ugh. Well, because I think that, again, comes back to the fact that there are just so many shows that if people don't 
get hooked immediately. They just move on to the next thing. And then by the time you have another year, if you're looking at what gets nominated and those patterns, you don't often see something like the Americans where they nominated it after a few years for the first time because they just drop a show and move on. There's only so many hours. Let's see what actually is new. And so to that end, last year we had a, a host of impressive rookie shows. We have already mentioned The Handmaid's Tale and This Is Us. There was also Stranger Things, The Crown, Atlanta, Speechless, on and on. This year, what are the first season series that you're most excited about? There aren't honestly that many. And I think that's one of the things that's going to be interesting this year as Emmy nomination season rolls around is, are people going to remember honestly any of them? You look on the drama side, one could make an argument that The Deuce was a really, really good show in its first season, but one could just as easily make the argument that it aired a long time ago, many things have aired since, and that realistically its biggest selling point is two performances by James Franco, and that's going to run into problems. It, it just is. So there aren't that many dramas that are going to be contenders. I would like to see J.K. Simmons be a contender for Counterpart. I think I think that's a great performance that should be recognized. I don't know that the series is ever going to be. There are more comedy options. I think that if Netflix can make people remember that Glow existed, I think that's a viable option. But the first season of Glow was a year ago. That's so long. I think Amazon has a better position with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I love. In a year in which Veep, which has won for the last several years, is out. I actually think Mrs. Maisel might win Best Comedy Series. I was really skeptical. And then I went and looked at the category. And yes, with Veep out, with Saturday Night Live taking a drop and so therefore losing a couple nominations in certain fields and giving Amazon shows room to sort of sneak in in certain places, I think it has a much better chance than I would have guessed. Like, I think that Amazon has to push something. Yeah. And Amazon's other major comedy contender is transparent and it's got problems that. And it was already falling off, <laughs> fell off the best comedy series lineup last year anyway, before the tambor situation. So yeah. I just want to throw out just quickly in case any of these strike your fancy about saying something, other rookie shows this year that have sort of camps of supporters from Netflix, you have Ozark and Mindhunter. Mindhunter seems to have done extremely well with critics and yet was totally overlooked by SAG, Critics' Choice, Golden Globes, whatever. Then from Showtime, you have The Shy which I think is still just rolling out, so people are maybe catching up to that still. Trust is just hitting on FX with Donald Sutherland, Hillary Swank. Rise came in with a lot of expectation on NBC. You <laughs> savaged it. <laughs> hey, I didn't. I said that that was one that if people watched it long enough, right. it becomes a decent show. But that was one where I said you have to watch it for six or seven episodes yeah. before it becomes good. And I don't know that I can recommend anyone doing right. that. Right. Let's just say Rise is not going to be an award contender. That well, one I'm sure of. <laughs> how about one of my favorites from Showtime, Smelf? I think that Frankie Shaw is going to be in the discussion. I think that it's so much more a Golden Globe show than an Emmy show. And, and I think that she is worth having in the conversation. And I think she's extremely talented. And it's a show that tried a lot of stuff. I think that that's a show that has the potential to be so much better in its second season. Like, I think they were, it was the first season was a training wheel season. And sometimes it was brilliant in that. Sometimes you said, okay, you're, you're trying something. Right. Keep trying. I think the second season of that show could be really big. Uh, regarding a couple of the other ones you mentioned, Ozark, it's probably Jason Bateman or Bust, and that's that's too bad because I think Kelly Gardner is the best part of the show, and I don't think she has even a chance. I think it's Bateman and Laura Linney or nothing, and mm-hmm. that's not a show that I loved all that much. Mindhunter, 
it's just it's a tough show mm -hmm. it's a it's a dark dark show i would love to see a couple of the actors who played the killers who they go to visit mm -hmm. in the prison i'd love to see a couple of them get recognized in guest acting yeah. categories that to me is is where netflix should push all of its chips in is to see if they can get a couple of those guys guest actor well then the the other one that i left off because it is i wanted to give it its own discussion because it just dropped is barry from hbo what are your thoughts on this we've got both bill hader and TV royalty, Henry Winkler, and it seems like Winkler's really gone over well. My initial reaction to that one was that it was going to be too odd and weird a show to be like a, a series contender. And I thought that Hater could be and certainly Winkler, but the review's been really terrific. And I, I don't know that I was necessarily expecting it to be as top to bottom positive, and it really could actually be a contender again with Veep out. So that means yeah. that HBO has to put its money somewhere. Right. And Honestly, I think it's better than Silicon Valley at this point. So it'll be a question of how they push it. I think that Hater and Winkler should both be in conversations for sure. Interesting. Well, so here's a chance for you to go to bat for stuff that should be in the conversation, but maybe is not to the extent that you feel it deserves to be. What are some of these shows? I've seen your top 10 list from last year. You went to bat for a lot of shows that were not recognized in the same year that you went to bat for them. So what are this year's ones that maybe they got a nom here or there last year, but they really deserve to be taken more seriously across the board? Well, I already mentioned J.K. Simmons on Counterpart. That's one where I will definitely be going out there and banging a little drum for it. I think that Rita Moreno for One Day at a Time is it's just such a wonderful performance. And it's so strange to me that a show with Netflix behind it with this, you know, EGOT legend who's giving this ridiculously flamboyant, fun, lively performance that somehow she can't get an Emmy nomination. That's that's just so strange right. to me. I feel like, is there one more chance for Halt and Catch Fire to be nominated, even though it's not going to be? I can't remember if, if, if it <laughs> snuck in after the nomination period. Check that. Those are a couple of the things that I'm going to go to bat. Well, for. and you also love Better Things and Baskets, both on FX, right? I cannot wait to see what it is that is going to happen with Pamela Adlon and better things involving the sort of the negative halo coming from Louis C.K. I, I think that I think that it deserves nominations for everything. Right. But she separated herself pretty nicely. Reasonably well. You know, she hasn't. I think everyone recognized it was her show. On the other hand, he wrote or co-wrote every single episode oh, last right? season and she directed every episode. Yeah. But it puts them in a position where several of those episodes under any other circumstances you would have gone oh writing nominee for sure for that one that's not going to happen <laughs> so do we recognize it as being okay let's give her maybe a directing nominee because right. she's fantastic right give well, she her... did get an acting one last year she right? did and i hope that she does again it's it, for for me it definitely should be in the comedy series category and as for baskets my big question on that one and i need an answer on this from the good people at fx right. is are they moving louis anderson to lead actor because the show was not Louis Anderson's show when it started. It was Zach Galifianakis in two roles, and let's watch him play two roles and enjoy that. It has completely and totally become Louis Anderson's show, and he does not belong in a supporting acting category for that show. But FX also knows that if they move him to lead actor, suddenly they've got two people from the same show cannibalizing the vote, and they don't want to do that, especially with Donald Glover coming back in. So I'm curious what they're going to do there. And then you mentioned trust also. I'm going to be curious 
as to what happens every year when FX has all of its different anthology slash limited series is going head to head is who the favorite children are. And so Versace was not as loved as OJ. But I think that ultimately the people who liked Versace really liked it. Mm -hmm. And I think that because it started off with those it's not OJ reviews, maybe people are going to be underestimating it. And I still would expect it to get certainly Darren Chris. Oh, but I think I think top to bottom, I think it's going to get 12 to 15 nominations or more. Possibly. I feel like OJ got 18 or 20. FX will have a nice but then Day. they've got trust coming, and so Donald Sutherland for sure is a, is a nominee. I think probably Brendan Fraser for sure. You think is a Donald nominee. Sutherland's for sure going to get nominated? Yes, I would think so. Okay, because I haven't started that yet. I'm very excited. Oh no, to check he's it out. he's terrific. I I think he is. What's the general premise? The general premise is all the money in the world only as a TV show. <laughs> is what the, but the general premise is also all the money in the world only good. Yeah. So <laughs> it's in all ways superior to all the money in the world. But it's the exact same story. And so you watch. And if you're one of the people who saw All the Money in the World, which, of course, you are, you go, whoa, that's Brendan Fraser playing the same part as Mark Wahlberg. How (laughs) how is that happening? That's Hilary Swank playing the same part as Michelle Williams. That's strange. But no, I think Donald Sutherland is is just remarkable. And I think that Brendan Fraser is really good. And I think that the that there was that great Brendan Fraser magazine profile that people passed around. And I think that got passed around enough that people sort of had their loins girded for the Brendan Fraser renaissance. He had his loins girded by the HFPA president <laughs> in that article. Oh, yes. So, but I think I think people are going to feel like he deserves recognition for this comeback, and I think it's wow. going to help him. That's, so, that's high praise. The, okay. the, the series itself, I'm not sure. I've only seen three episodes. They happen to be the only three that Danny Boyle directed. They're very good. I have no idea what the show's going to look like. Last few things. A few years ago, you know, Homeland started out with a bang, on Showtime. It won Best Drama Series for its first season, was very well regarded for a number of seasons. Then most people, I think, felt it went off a cliff. I forget which number of season. And then interestingly, it has actually kind of come back to the extent that I saw our own editor-in-chief, Matt Bellany, tweeted that he thinks this is the best season yet. I don't know if he has the Feinberg F-I-E-N-B-E-R-G <laughs> you know, stamp of approval on that statement, but this is all to lead into the question of are there any shows that we've really held in high regard up until this year that just went off a cliff this year? I think Modern Family went off a cliff a few years ago. What others, though, recently have just fallen apart? It's been so long since the Game of Thrones season actually aired. I think people felt like the season before was really bad and still won outstanding drama series Emmy. So I don't know if that one's gone off a cliff, but it's definitely one where people keep going, oh, it was better two seasons ago, and yet it's still going to be nominated for 20 Emmys. I'm trying to think of things that have gone off cliffs. Unreal went off a cliff after its first season into its second season. A couple people seem to be claiming it's better this season. I would not expect that Constance Simmer is going to bump back up into the Emmy field. That doesn't happen so much. I can't honestly think of a show that went off a cliff because the funny thing is with all of those first year shows last year is that you never know when you're going to recognize one of them and when it's just going to fall apart the next season and you're going to end up looking stupid. Like going back to the TCA Awards, we gave Program of the Year to Heroes for its first season. And I can defend that because it was a phenomenon in its first season, but it still looks bad because it went (laughs) off the cliff so badly. But looking at the first year shows that were nominated last year, The Crown already came back and was as acclaimed. Stranger Things came back and was roughly as acclaimed Mm -hmm. with some small caveats. I've seen an episode of Handmaid's Tale. It's going to be roughly as good, I think. Haven't seen any of Westworld. So 
I think that's sort of where a question comes is what's going to go off a cliff. Right. And Something's so far, so far, though, there hasn't been a notable example of a first year show. You know, this is us had a had a decent second season or right. as good a second season. So there hasn't been the conspicuous second year fall off this year. Knock on wood, I guess. <laughs> For a long time, comic related material was sort of dismissed by both film critics and I think TV critics, and maybe most of the time, deservedly so. But in the last few years, I never saw Heroes, but I guess that was related to sort of superhero, right, kind of stuff? It was, but not directly. Not directly. But then you've got, at this moment, Legion on FX, which I know critics love as much as I believe anyone. I mean, it's a big critics favorite. But then also just coming back with a second season that I think it was sort of, I think people don't know what to do with it, but it's, in my humble opinion, pretty good, is Jessica Jones from Netflix. And I just wonder if you have any take on those shows and just generally, you know, at the same time we're seeing comic-related material blow up in films where you're just, just seeing a, a higher quality. Maybe it was the, the way was paved by The Dark Knight a few years ago, but now you've got Wonder Woman. You've got the Black Panther. It's, it's obviously taking off to a certain extent with film. Do you feel that there's been a comparable rising of the tides with TV? There really hasn't been, and it's a little bit confusing, and it's been confusing consistently with the Marvel shows before they started on Netflix, was why is it that none of these shows are massive breakout hits if the movies are making $500 million? Why are the TV shows not doing that? And, you know, why is Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. never been a hit? Yeah. And it hasn't been. And why are the various DC shows on the CW, why are they all CW-sized hits? Why are none of them massive breakout hits? But they're all littler you know something like a black lightning comes out and it got great reviews and i think it's a really good distinctive show and its numbers are are minuscule they they barely register and so no one is going to talk about that show for awards you think it's just that it's the small smaller screen or that it's you actually don't want to spend that much time with one of these characters that without intervals of a year or so between. I mean, what could that be? I think they all have flaws. And I think the flaw with all of the Netflix shows is the insistence on doing 13 episode seasons for every single one of them, except for the Defenders. Not a single one of the 13 episode Netflix shows has been worthy of 13 episode seasons. And every single one of them would have been better at six or eight or 10. And I don't know who's responsible for that and who said they have to be 13 regardless. It was a mistake. They would all have been better with more economical storytelling. So I think that's part of it. Like, I honestly think probably the Legion is the quote unquote best of them because it is the most artistic. It is thanks to Noah Hawley. That is a show that is crazy ambitious and crazy cinematic in a way I don't think any of the other comic shows are. It's also verging on impenetrable (laughs) and if you don't pay attention to that show you will be lost so immediately and i pay attention to that show and i am lost watching that show on the other hand it's stunning it's just beautiful to look at but that's still going to be a pretty big barrier to entry for audiences that it's impenetrable and then the fact that it's a superhero show is going to be a barrier of entry to award givers so it's sort of stuck in the in another world which is appropriate to the topic of the show so (laughs) well the last question pertains to, I don't know what the correct term is, reboot, revival, whatever we're going through right now, there is a wave of these. We had already this year the return of Twin Peaks and Will and Grace. We will soon have the return of Arrest Development. 
and down the road after that, I believe we're going to have now Clarissa Explains It All and a whole additional group of these. You uh, need to put these things into tiers. I don't think that yeah, Arrested be, Development Twin Peaks. <laughs> and, 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 Twin Peaks yeah. and Clarissa, Clarissa Explains It All, right. Not no, the no. same thing. But the one that is the talk of the town this week, because it came back in rebooted form with all the same people and did numbers that shows just don't do anymore is Roseanne back at ABC, Red Meat for Red States. What is this about and could it actually penetrate the Emmy race? 18 plus million viewers and a 5.2 in the 18 to 49 demographic for live viewership. That is ridiculous. That is not something that you get on broadcast TV at this point. So it can't be ignored. It could, of course, fall in half next week and fall in half the week after that, and then it can be pushed under the rug, and that's okay. But if you'd asked me two days before the premiere, I would have told you, no, probably not going to be a contender. If you ask me after those numbers, you can't ignore it. Like, I think you now have to put Laurie Metcalf into the supporting actress category. You just you just have to, yeah. because she always was when the show was on. I think she won three times, and she's Laurie Metcalf. She, right. she deserved to win an Oscar this year, for heaven's sakes. So I think suddenly she has to be there. I think that John Goodman has to be in the discussion, whether or not he's as sure a thing Probably not. Roseanne Barr. Here's I think, the tough one. Right? Well, no, I think, and I think she will. I think she will be easy for voters to say no thank you to, <laughs> honestly, because I, I think she was always kind of an acquired taste as a performer right. anyway. And though she was nominated basically every year for right. the show and won at least once, so you know they they did like her. I, I think it will be possible to punish her as an actress while acknowledging other aspects of the show, but even pushing Laurie Metcalf into that category means someone else isn't getting there. And so someone like Megan Mullally, who was always nominated right. in that category for Will and Grace, I wonder if now suddenly she becomes last week's revival news right. because Laurie Metcalf is pushing in. But this whole idea that supposedly, you know, liberal Hollywood that hates Trump more than anything is going to join the parade, join the bandwagon of this show that is not what you would expect them to like. I just wonder if it's a hard thing to read. It sort of is like Trump. So how did he do that well? How did this show do that well? You know, I guess I'd love to see, and maybe these are numbers are available, but like, where are these ratings coming from? Is it truly dispersed around the whole country? Or is this the flyover states? They're getting behind it and the rest of the country isn't? I'd be very curious to know. Some of the numbers are up on The Hollywood Reporter now. And the answer is that an awful lot of the largest concentrations really are the middle of the country. It's it's Tulsa. It's Pittsburgh, which is not quite middle mm -hmm, of the country, mm -hmm. but still middler. Mm -hmm. It really is cities in between. I don't want to say flyover, yeah, but yeah, something yeah. like that. And so I think we know that. And I think that the thing about Roseanne is that it was admired in its day and it was beloved. And I think it was beloved both by the people who are in the middle of the country and were waiting right. for it to be to come back and be reflected. But also, I think it was loved by Hollywood. I think if you look at the number of alums who came through the writer's room on that show, it's basically everyone who's written a comedy in the past 20 years. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing right. writing staff that they had over the years on that show, many of whom got scared away by working with Roseanne over the years. <laughs> but even still, the fact that they were able to do work in that context is remarkable. It's, yeah. it's really, it's everybody who's done comedy wrote on that show. And I think that a lot of people do have a soft spot in their heart for it. And the question then becomes how widely they're going to embrace it if these numbers stay anywhere even near mm -hmm. this. You know, even if it they- It blew away Stormy Daniels numbers for 60 <laughs> minutes. And- Blew away is probably the wrong <laughs> term to use. Sorry about that, but 
Yeah. <laughs> no, I, but I, I do think that if the numbers, you know, they'll they'll fall by a third next week, probably. But if if, if say the 5.0 in the 18 to 49 demo, if it becomes two eight or two nine or even a three, it's going to be impossible to deny. And so then it becomes a question, do you have to nominate it for everything? Can you get away with just nominating Laurie Metcalf and saying, OK, that's our representation? Right. And I think that'll be how the voters are going to respond. Again, I think they will find it easy to ignore Roseanne, but I don't think they'll find it as easy to ignore Laurie Metcalf, right. who's beloved and as, you know, liberal a figure right, and no. playing the representative liberal character on the show as well. You know, if they're going to feel like they need to, you know, respect John Goodman, who always is worthy of respect and has, you know, has won Emmys in mm -hmm. the past and all of that, and how many nominations they can give the show to properly honor it but not give it, say, best comedy. President Feinberg, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, a pleasure. And now for my interview with Kristen Ritter. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, Ritter and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them how an awkward social outcast wound up a model and how modeling then gave way to acting, how she broke in and then broke out of playing best friends and then landed the part of Jane on Breaking Bad, and how that, in turn, led to the part of Chloe on Don't Trust the Bee, how she handled the abrupt and somewhat inexplicable cancellation of Don't Trust the Bee, and then wound up the only actress ever seriously in contention for the lead on Jessica Jones, a show that began exploring sexual misconduct and its impact on victims long before the Harvey Weinstein exposés, how, with Jessica Jones, as with Don't Trust the Bee, she manages to play a character who is not quote-unquote likable without losing the audience's affection, and how portraying a woman who has been through such dark things and still spends a lot of her time in a dark mindset has touched viewers and impacted herself, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I mentioned earlier when I saw you that I was looking at the date of the last thing that we did, which people can see on YouTube. It was almost six years ago, so a lot has happened in your life, and I want to cover that. But first, just we always kind of go back to the beginning or start at the beginning. And for that, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Pennsylvania. My mother, when I was little was a waitress and then she went back to put herself through school and now she's an RN. My dad was a truck driver for a lumber company. So I lived in a very small town called Benton until I was about 12. And then my parents split up and then I moved to a neighboring town about 20 minutes away, a different school district called Shikshini where I lived on a beef farm with my mother and her new husband, my stepfather little different. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I remember you were not happy about that at change in your life, right? Right. Yeah. You know, at 12, that's a pretty big shift to go from being in a little town with a couple of streets. You can ride your bike to get a slice of pizza and knock on your cousin's door next door, knock on your friend's door on the other right. side, walk to school. I mean, we're talking a teeny tiny town. It's like first street, second street, third street. That's it. Right. But to then move to the boonies where it's just it's the country and there's no neighbors was a was a pretty big shift for well, me especially at that age they were yeah. about to go on a transition in your life and i think you were saying that it's like weirdly you felt like an outcast because people didn't they thought you did not look nice at that point or what was the what was the story they had a, you you were sort of bullied a little bit right i was an outcast because i was a new kid at a new school in a small town everybody else knew each other 
I kind of looked a little wacky. I was a beanpole and I had black hair and I stuck out in that way. Also, my parents were divorced and that wasn't something people were doing yet. <laughs> Five minutes later, everyone's right, divorced. Everyone, now it's the cool thing. But, but yeah. then, um, so I was like, I felt like some whispers and things like that. I kind of just fell fell through the cracks. Right. And I was also an only child. So going from this little town, being near my cousins and things like that, to then being like totally isolated in the country and new and not knowing anybody, it was lonely. A lot of people that we have on this podcast, they talk about, oh, when I was six, I was a theater kid or I was in, you know, church plays or whatever. For you, before acting and even before the thing that led you to acting, what specifically at 15, I think, did you think you were going to do with your life? <laughs> so at 15, my mom had my sister, Bailey, who was really close to me, and she was born with a heart murmur. I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I loved my sister. She was like it. She was like my living, breathing baby doll. Mm-hmm. She slept in my room first day. She came home. When she woke up in the middle of the night for food or whatever, I gave her the bottle, took her back to bed with me, and she had a heart murmur. So my mom told me, like, I should be a pediatric cardiologist. I didn't really know what that was or what it meant, but my mom had also expressed, my mom's young, she had me at 19. Wow, okay. So my mom is young, yeah. young mom. <laughs> and she had friends who, she said, had committed suicide because they didn't know what they wanted to be when they grew up. So she kind of gave me something. Yeah. And so that's what I would say in school, in home ec, when they go around the the table, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? People would say whatever they say. And I was like, pediatric cardiologist. Well, it's a a noble goal. So then how (laughs) at that same year, I guess, in life. Literally the same year. (laughs) That that got put on the sidelines by by what happened. Yeah. And by the way, I wasn't like on a goal. I was on a path to become (laughs) that. It was just a thought. But I'd never thought of myself in any other way. I never thought of myself in entertainment. I wasn't exposed to anything. I have no connections. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who's an actor or a model. Mm-hmm. So I was at the mall with my mom. It kind of started like my mom went through a lot of fertility processes to have my sister. She ended up just not needing to do that. Yeah. But she went through a lot of a lot of that stuff. And the nurses would always tell my mom like, oh, she's so tall and she's so skinny. She should be a model. And we, we were always like, what? At a time when you yourself were thinking... I look weird because that's yeah. what people are telling me. Yeah. Everybody, yeah, of course. That's what people would tell me. And so when I was scouted at the mall, I think that was everyone's reaction. Her? <laughs> She's not even pretty. Oh, my God. So it was a surprise. But then when I was brought to New York, finally, and I started going on the bus to, to jobs and things like that and meeting other models and living in the model's apartment. These other girls also my age were also just as weird looking. Well, let's not skip over though yeah. how you ended up going to New York even. I mean, yeah. so you, you're being told by the nurses you're, you should- recons- My mom is being told that. Being yeah. told that you're, you're yeah. pretty, you should be a model. How do you then become a model? I don't know. I honestly <laughs> don't know how that all worked out. When I look back, I'm like, what? So we were at the mall and Elite Model Management, which is a big agency, you know, you've heard of them, mm-hmm. John Casablanca's. Mm-hmm. They go to small towns and malls, and that's where they find a lot of girls, and they were there, and they saw me, and I'm in, like, big jeans and a whatever, cherry chapstick necklace. Yes, cherry chapstick (laughs) necklace. And this booker, her name was Erin, she asked me if I was interested in modeling, and my mom and I were like, what? (laughs) Then she put me into a contest that I ended up, like, winning, Mm -hmm. and had to go on to, like, the next level, and and that got me to New York. And so when you went to New York, it's like, by this point, you're 16, but you're going solo? My first time to New York, I was 15, and my so mom 15. went with me. Okay. And then, I, yes, I started going solo. So you're coming from still Pennsylvania. From Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. I'd get on the March Trailways bus. Okay. 
It's three hours. I think it was like 54 bucks round trip or something. Right. One way, I don't remember. My sister goes now all the time and it's 100, but I, I imagine the price has <laughs> Inflation, gone up. Yes. Yes. So you were just years. going in for like go for a shoot or something, come go back sees. the same day? Yep. Yes. Go sees a, a test shoots maybe a magazine job here and there. I would go in in the morning super early and come back at night. How did you like that world? I loved it and I was fearless. When you're young, your brain's not fully formed yet and I wasn't afraid and I met people and I felt like I fit in and I felt like I was exposed to all this new stuff and like loved it. And I think because I didn't even though I said I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist, there wasn't something that I was like passionate about. I had question marks. I wasn't like sure what I wanted to do. And so when I got to New York and got my foot in the door in that way, I was like, there's all this other stuff. And and then I, I, I got very driven. Once you've seen the city, you don't want to go back to the farm or whatever. Literally is yeah. applies to your situation. Yeah. So you were driven to do well at modeling. Modeling for a lot. It's not uncommon for modeling to lead to a desire to get into acting, yet there aren't a ton of people who make the jump successfully. How did it even but come I, about? Is that true? I wonder, because I think so many, I feel like every, a lot of actresses start, I think, as well, models. A lot of... I wasn't like a famous model. You, you know what I mean? Right. I was like a kid. What, what sort of jobs would you get? Like Adelia's catalog or <laughs> magazines. Right, My first right. job was Mademoiselle. I was in 17. I was doing, you know, I booked some jobs. So you would go in for the jobs and then go back to high school in Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. And did this affect your life in, in high school? Were you suddenly a little treated a little nicer or what was the story there? I don't know. I definitely I don't think I was treated a little nicer. I think people then automatically assume that you are stuck up or something <laughs> or they think you're not even pretty. How are you a model? So there's like that stuff that mm-hmm. goes on. I started missing more school mm-hmm. and that was an issue, of course. Then your teachers are like, why are you missing school to mm-hmm. do modeling jobs? No one took it seriously. No one thought it would, nothing would come of it. They thought I was wasting my time. My own parents thought, you know, it was a waste of time. Were you feeling at all an expectation that you would go to college or that if this could be instead of college, that would be fine? I wanted to go to college, but there was no one to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't totally on the table for me, as embarrassing as that is to say. That wasn't totally on the table. I wanted to go to college and I had applied and I got into the whatever near something nearby and the modeling things just started to heat up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I did that. What caused you to change agencies? And then what did changing agencies actually lead to? So, yeah, so I started, I was with Elite, and then I moved to Wilhelmina. And this happens a lot in the modeling industry. There's a very high turnover rate, not just for models and getting sent home if you don't work, right. but bookers, too. Yeah, bookers, yeah. which is the modeling world's version of agents, mm-hmm. they move around a lot. So if your booker is not there anymore and you can go somewhere else and it's not, there's not really a big, big stigma about like switching. So I switched to Wilhelmina, which was great. I met amazing girls. I lived in the models apartment for a bit. That's a place in New York? A place in New York. It's a model's apartment that the agency owns. It's usually a two-bedroom place with bunk beds, and all the models who are in town stay there. (laughs) And this was your first time actually living in New York? Yeah, it was the first time living in New York. And Wilhelmina had an acting division for models who would do commercials. Mm -hmm. And one day they were like, Kristen's really, like, you know, funny and bubbly and obnoxious and weird. We (laughs) should send her on, on these commercial auditions. And I started going to them, and I started booking them all. 
And well, that's what was when the first one, the first, I remember there was a story with that, like you, Dr. Pepper. Or something? Yeah, Dr. Pepper was my first commercial audition, and I got it. That's crazy. So you kind of were just a natural. Yeah, I think also because I then now spent some time modeling, and that's ba- that's about your looks mm-hmm. and about your portfolio. And you come in, and people look at it and don't really even pay attention to you, or don't really want you to say anything. <laughs> and you know, it's not really a great job for me. Right, because you, you would. Well, I was you like, could, oh, you, you got more to offer. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so when I went to these commercial auditions, they would ask me questions, and or be like, tell us a funny story, or tell us a joke, or like do a funny dance move. And at that time, like I was so fearless, I would like pull my dress over my head and fall on the ground to get a laugh. <laughs> So that was kind of, that, that was what happened. I ended up getting cut out of that commercial. Out of Dr. Pepper? Yes, they didn't put me in. I didn't make the final cut. Never drinking it again. That's ridiculous. But that was my first audition and the first time I was like, I have control. So that is what appealed to you is that, because yes. basically, I guess it's got to be in the back of the head of any model that tastes change. With time, they move on to somebody else. It's all kind of fickle. It's out yeah, of your control. It's very fickle. Right? Yeah. So here with acting, if you work hard enough and study hard enough, which I know you immediately yeah, went hardcore. into doing, like you can just have a little bit more control over your hundred percent. It felt like apples and oranges. Because you can always get better, you have something to offer, you can be more prepared, you can study your face off. It's a totally different thing. As you began to now take acting more seriously, how did you get involved with the Meisner technique? And for anyone who's listening who doesn't really know what that is, maybe you can give a little overview. Yeah, the Meisner technique really teaches you how to listen. It was so fun. I'm like brighten up when we get to talk <laughs> about it because it's also been so many years and this is such an exciting time in my life when you're in New York and you're just going to acting classes. It's so fun. So Meisner technique teaches you how to listen. And when you're coming from being a model, there was a lot of models in the class, actually. I think that's that maybe how I got hooked up with the teacher. There was another girl, there's another other actress. Her name is Lindsay Craft. She and I were starting out at the same time. She was a model at Wilhelmina, and she started acting and started studying with this woman, Nina Morano. And she had this school in New York, and so I went there too. And it helps you get the focus off yourself. So you're not you're not worried about your physical appearance. You're not worried about like what you look like. And in fact, like. If they ever filmed it or something, mm-hmm. you'd be like, oh, my God, I look crazy. My posture is so bad. Or I like my, my hands move all the time. Or I'm so insane. But if you're really not thinking about what you're doing, you put all the attention on someone else. It teaches you how to be present. Mm-hmm. So that was an incredible tool for me to have in the beginning. But basically, you do a repetition. Like you'll do 10 minutes like you're wearing a white shirt. You're, I'm wearing a white shirt. You're wearing a white shirt. I'm wearing a white shirt. Back and forth, back and forth until you die. <laughs> but it's a blast. And I learned so much. And really in acting class, like getting lost doing scenes, that's where it really, really like, that's that's the drugs. And were you simultaneously while taking that class going out on auditions and stuff at the time already? Or do you figure, let's learn this stuff and then go? Like, A how- little bit of both. Yeah. So what I first, I started coaching first with this acting teacher in New York, Alice Spivak. Mm-hmm. Just to back up a little bit, yeah. after Wilhelmina, I went to, I moved again to company. And company models had an even more serious acting division where Flutie Entertainment. So then I had a manager there and she was like, okay, it wasn't like I was a model anymore who was going out on acting jobs. It was like, let's get serious. I don't want to send you out. I never want to hear you're green. We're going to like, you're going to, you're going to work with Alice for a long time until she thinks you're ready to go on auditions. And were you 
financially willing to just like table modeling opportunities? It's like, we're not going to do this. We're just going to do acting. Or were you juggling both for a while? At that point, it was kind of the same thing. Because if you could get a commercial, like that would that would keep you afloat for a little bit. Right. That was where you could make a little bit of scratch. Yeah, yeah. So one other teacher that I know comes into play Marjorie here. Marjorie Valentine. Yeah, Marjorie yeah. Valentine. When and because she seems to. I think you still work yeah. with her. Yeah, I still work with her on Jessica Jones. That's amazing. All and, the time. So what, I've worked with her for over ten years now. It's amazing, and so that's a real testament to a the fact that you take this so seriously, and mm-hmm. b that she must be pretty good. So what is it about her? Oh, she's so fantastic. She is. She gets me. She pushes me. She really pushes me. Sometimes, like, someone will be like, oh, you were so great in this scene. And she'll be like, mm-mm. <laughs> um, and so she keeps me on my toes. We share, like, a passion and a fire, and we kind of inspire each other. We have a really amazing uh, creative collaborative process that we just fire each other up, you know? And she just happens to be, like, the person, and I'm so lucky I found her. You know, it's even, like, dating, too, right. or, like, a showrunner. Like, right. you can date a million people or five people. <laughs> when you find the right one, it's on fire. So with her, it's you, on fire. you get a script. I get a script, and we go over it, mm-hmm. and we talk about, you know, with season two, for example, mm-hmm. a lot of that, like, building is, yeah, is yeah. already done. So we just kind of get into the scenes and make sure, like, all my subtext is there and make sure, like, everything is very specific and find stuff that's not on the page. And it ends up being, like, the work that I do... The bulk of the work that I do and what she helps me with is when I'm not saying anything. Right. That's what I was going to – That's where the work is. We're going to come back to that because one of the things that I think throughout your shows that you've been a part of that people, you know, if they pay attention are going to notice is that – and particularly with Jessica Jones, there's she's a character who is by choice by herself a lot of the time, and that means you have to communicate what is going on. She can't – it's not going to be just like – dead stare silence yeah. so there's a lot for you to oh, yeah. and you do communicate so I, I, I will let's I guess let's come back to that in a moment though but as you were now with these various teachers getting your getting your act together so to speak and yeah. going out in the world you were just basically saying yes to yeah. any opportunity including yeah. music videos yeah. and we've said commercials and then what were the first extra and some movies extras okay yeah. so when did you finally get jobs that felt you know, media along the lines of what you were wanting to be doing. Yeah, parts. Yeah, I started getting parts in 2004. (laughs) Okay. Up until then, I was just like, in whatever. Right. In the background of something, or like one line here and there, and one line of Mona Lisa smile. You know what I mean? (laughs) And then something happened where I started going out and getting callbacks for like, everything mm-hmm. and it was like oh when's that thing gonna happen when's that thing gonna happen and then i started booking what changed stuff. why do you think that started i think it, it's a numbers game at a certain point and like it's just a progression people have to know casting people, directors people have, have to know, to know you, you. Right. i think for a while i started going out and people were like oh this girl's really interesting but she's so weird where do we put her and i would get callbacks and maybe like me and like all these other girls that look alike and then me or well, i would always stop, like the though, other choice because why when you say they're like this girl's great, but she's weird. How do you think you were, people were reading you? Why would they? Very quirky. Okay, so that's the key word that came. I remember even <laughs> six years ago, I asked you because every profile that had ever been written of you used the word quirky. Totally. So what do you understand that to mean? Like, I what, have no idea. Because it was, it's you and like Zoe Deschanel and there's a few people where you can't find anyone writing something without them saying that. And I just wonder, it's not an affectation to try to be quirky. This is just who you who yeah. you are, right? Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I think because, like, I think at this point, whatever, this is like 2004 mm-hmm. or two, 
a lot of like the girls that were leading shows and leading movies looked more, way more conventional, way more appealing, way more like four quadrant, <laughs> you know, and I wasn't that and I'm not that. Right, right, right. I'm a little bit more specific. Well, but I think that's so interesting because you were really at the at the forefront of that kind of changing. Like you have the Aniston era where it's like, to your point, there's sort of like this was the look and now it's it's so different. Just yeah. even a few. Anyway. For a few years there early on, you were all the other thing that was maybe mentioned more often than it actually was the case, but you were becoming classified in the eyes of some people as the best friend, right? Right. In this case, it's you and Judy Greer. Those are the go-to best friends. There weren't actually that many instances where that, because what was it like? She's out of my league. Shopaholic. Okay. And so maybe because those were movies that were pretty seen that people assumed. But like you were content with how things were evolving? Yeah, because I like to work and I was working more than I worked a lot, right. yeah. like nonstop. You can and see, yeah. so there was a lot of parts available to me that were different. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a character actress. Right. I, I get to show up and stuff. In those <laughs> early days, were you imagining that your future was likeliest to be like jumping from movie to movie? Or did you think there was a chance you would become a TV kind of revisiting the same part over and over for a while, like in a series or whatever. Well, when I was doing Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. that made me want my own show. Okay. That made me want a show like Breaking Bad. Right. Because not just creatively, I love right. the content and I love the show and the, the that kind of dramatic storytelling and it's edgy and cool and badass. Mm-hmm. But also, I liked what they had going on on set. Just the vibe. Just the vibe. I thought, like Aaron Paul was so stoked to be there. Brian Cranston was so stoked to be there and they were getting to do like a lot of different stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're coming up, you hear everyone kind of like, oh, I want to do this or I want to do this. Or people would say like, I don't want to be on a show and do the same thing all the time. And like those things imprint you. Right. And then when I was watching Brian and Aaron Paul, like they were so stoked and they were having so much fun and they got to play so many different colors. Yeah. Why not? If you can recreate that, which it's a high bar. There's not too many shows that will ever meet the no, Breaking not, Bad bar. It's not about bar. that. It's not about but the But it's the experience. Yeah, the experience. Yeah. And I liked the the camaraderie and the, the family that you create yes. with the crew. Well, so we should now address how you came to be part of that. So the, yeah. after you had done things where I guess you got seen by more and more people, Veronica Mars and Gilmore Girls and different yeah. things. But your arc for Breaking Bad was season two. Yep. When you showed up, it was still a pretty, actually a pretty under the radar show because I don't think it was until Netflix started streaming it. And Vince even said this when they won Best Drama Series at the Emmys one year. He's like, had Netflix not begun streaming the show during the run, he's not sure it would have even stayed on the air because it was under. You imagine. Which is crazy to think about. But so for you, at the time that you heard about an opportunity to be part of this, what did you know about it? And. Also, what did you think if you got this part of of Jane Margolis? What did you think you were signing, you know, potentially signing up for? It was it was it ended up being a lot more than advertised, right? I thought it was going to be an arc that was like four or five episodes. It ended up being, I think, nine episodes. Yeah. So in the whole season, it ended up being a pivotal role yeah. and, a, and a pivotal point in the story for yeah. for Walter White. So I didn't know all that. And when I signed on, it was only seven episodes on on like a link that they sent me. <laughs> it wasn't even yet like I think, on DVD or I, certainly I, not streaming. Because I think that was the season one happened the year of the writer's strike, so they made seven episodes. And then I show up season two, and that's when Brian like won the Emmy. Right. Started to get gone. Yeah. I remember <laughs> I was on set. Like when, So the day after the Emmys, he's there, and you're like, congratulations. <laughs> so that show really took off like, with like wildfire. 
it really helped me. I did it because I thought it was cool, and I thought that the part was more in line with like my real vibe. I'm not a heroin addict, but <laughs> I much you know I'm like a you know, <laughs> and I was playing like really like bubbly, adorable, like silly, ditzy characters at the time. Right. And I thought I was way more. I thought I thought it was cooler than that. No, for I'm sure. delusional. No, I'll see myself. And it, I'm like I'm really not that cool. It was very cool, and but and actually it was interesting because that could have easily not even have happened because you had another yeah, offer, right? I did, for the new adventures of old Christine. Which would have been cool in its own way, totally. I guess, the word with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Oh, but... she's heaven, and also it probably would have made more money. And, <laughs> um, what tipped the scale? Why even go for Breaking Bad when you have an offer to do it? A... Because that was the same part. Like, I was kind of, it was the same the thing. thing. I think at that time, I was just, that was kind of what I was doing. I right. was, like, popping up at some comedies, and the studios were starting to know me in that way, and that was good. But I was kind of just like the same opportunities. And I felt like Breaking Bad in that role was so much edgier and cooler and just kind of spoke to me like as an audience yeah. member. Like it was the content that I was, well, in- it was into. A lot of people wanted that part. And I know that you, I think, are aware of a few of them. But do you think you know the full I don't. list? I we don't. found out just two episodes ago right here that. Frankie Shaw, who's now on Smelf, says that she went out for that part. And a number of people, it's just amazing. I think you know, and we've talked like Juliette Lewis, Faruza Balk, I don't even know if I say that that right. But like, even though the show was still a little under the radar, reading the script, there was the potential to do something great. And then you had, now you have to rise to the cage. So you're there. You got your stuff with, most of your scenes are obviously with Aaron. Yeah. But then also got some good ones with Brian. Cranston Brian, too. which is cool. <laughs> and then I think the the stuff that you know, because this guy's not necessarily as as known, it gets glossed over. But the guy who played your father, John DeLacy, yeah. yeah, and the story that you had about that is crazy. That he actually it was not a. It was a little not like warm and fuzzy the way it was with you and Aaron Click. This guy, not so much. Yeah, we didn't really. Yeah, we didn't really like. <laughs> Hang out. Right. We weren't like hanging out in each other's trailers, like shooting the shit. It was kind of like Works. very utilitarian. Yeah, yeah. But it really worked. But what's, you know, why is he's not going to want to hang out with me? You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> I don't know how old I was at the time, but I'm like playing Nintendo DS. <laughs> he doesn't want to hang out with me. So you found out that because it was going well, they, they were going to extend your involvement beyond four or five episodes? I don't know. I think that... Maybe they just stretched out, or, or I don't think it's a show that had all the episodes written. I yeah. think that they kind of as it went along. Yeah, yeah have the outline. Yeah, and I did hear that when it was happening, they were kind of like, "Oh, we don't really want to kill you off." Right. <laughs> but then they brought me back for a weird flashback episode the yes. following season, which yeah. was really kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, when people finally saw you on the show, you know, despite your character's shortcomings, I think that's when maybe. Do you feel like you reached an audience that you'd never reached before? Maybe not the size, maybe not whatever, but the the kinds of people that you hope to reach. I think the industry watched the show. Yeah. I mean, I know that's how, like, that job got me Don't Trust to Be in Apartment 23, even though that's, like, a wacky comedy. It was a big, big network show. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, the title role, and it was a big deal. And I had a lot to do with Jessica Jones as well. Well, one last thing about Bring Bad... Talk about that big goodbye that you have there. I guess, you know, it was very emotional for people watching it, but it was also, sounds like it was pretty emotional for you performing it. And you're not necessarily somebody who lets things get to you from what I sense. And yet the scene 
of you not being saved or I guess of the whole discovery. Oh, yeah. It was, that's brutal. Yeah. It's brutal. Sometimes acting is really hardcore on you. Mm-hmm. It really takes a toll. And I remember it didn't really sink in what we were doing. People were responding more to me, like walking around in my like post-mortem makeup. <laughs> right. And how sad it was going to be. And it wasn't until I was in this. They made this chest cast for me so that Aaron Paul's character could be like smashing on my chest to mm-hmm. try and give me CPR, try to revive me, whatever. And they wanted him be, to be able to really hit me. And thank God they had the foresight in the production meetings to, to make that for me. Right. Because that could have been potentially like dangerous. Yeah. However, they made it to my stand-in or my body double who was skinnier than me and so it wouldn't close all the way and so I couldn't get a full breath of air and so that's already like oh right. you're like, trapped like this cast is on you I can't get a full breath of air it doesn't close all the way and then Aaron Paul's on top of you reacting in this way and crying so hard and I'm so sensitive like it was really difficult I had to I think we had to like take a minute yeah I mean so, and you said it was your birthday I think and it was, it was my <laughs> birthday you're right it was my birthday and even when I went back the next year it was also my birthday it just always worked out that we right. were shooting but that would be, birthday. uh, yeah, like a little panic attack inducing. That's not crazy to think. I mean, yeah. what a so much craziness. Plus, you know, you're leaving a show that's, yeah, pretty damn good. Yeah, it didn't like it just nothing really hit me in what was really going on until I'm like seeing the reaction. Mm-hmm. It's almost like having an out of body experience because you, you, you mean your body. on the set, yeah, on set in the scene. People were just like. Yeah, people were wow. bummed, and yeah. and Aaron's acting his face off, and like re- and react. It just was a it was an, it was way more intense than I expected. I was very naive. Wow. Well, I know that for a lot of years leading up to that, you had sort of had a very understandable aversion to pilot season. It's not something that actors necessarily enjoy. It's just brutal. The whole process is a little crazy to have all of this stuff happening compressed yeah. into like it's a so month hard or whatever. it's so intense it's a real it's a real roller coaster so having not wanted to be a part of it for years and yet now you are popping on breaking bad what was that next pilot season like well i mean i, I didn't have to audition right <laughs> so that was the great it makes <laughs> life a little difference. easier right <laughs> not to be a dick <laughs> no of course it makes so life... that made a big difference <laughs> <laughs> so you just get a like how does somebody pitch would you like to play a bitch on <laughs> the show? Well, randomly, you know, we started to get like some incoming calls that year. I'm like, huh, oh, this is so crazy. All of a sudden, like, I went, you know, I used to test a lot. Right, I'd right. go out for shit and get far and book things. Mm-hmm. And like, I was doing all right in the in the pilot world. Right. It's stressful. And I'm, you know, I'm a hardcore person. So I take it like, it's a lot of mm-hmm. adrenaline happening. And so then when people started having incoming calls, I'm like, oh, that's fun. (laughs) What's going on here? Right. But I was really wanted to do something cool and something fresh and something original and something actually funny. This isn't the first time someone said this, but usually pilots aren't very good. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of looking at stuff like, I don't know, is this really going to go? Is this really going to, this isn't very good. How, I could write something better Mm -hmm. than this because I was an asshole. (laughs) And then my friend Kiwi Smith, Kirsten Smith, she's a writer. Mm -hmm. She told me about Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23. She was like, Kristen, I just read about this new pilot that Jason Weiner's directing. You'd be the, you'd be so great as the bitch. God, what do you even say to that? So, I guess it's a good friend. She could say that. It was yeah. also like the, the log line was so funny. It was right. like about a New York party girl and the morals of a pirate or something. And basically just maybe another way just for a listener to kind of imagine it if they haven't seen it. I heard uh, two ways, sort of a gender reverse take on the odd couple, which makes sense a little bit. And then also 
you said, I think it sort of was a breakfast at Tiffany's, yep. right? If Modern she day, like, yeah, if Holly Golightly had a child like with the devil, right? That would be our show, right? 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 So I heard about it, and I asked my, I was like, all right, let me ask my agents about this, and they were like, well, funny enough, they they have called about you, and they want you to do it, and I had a meeting with Anatka Khan and Dave Hemmingson, and at that point, there was also a little tiny, tiny movie that I really wanted to do. Because I had just done like a string of indies. Mm-hmm. I had written my own movie. I was like in it. My little movie life happens. Yes. And so the Don't Trust the Bee pilot was just after all of that. And I was like, well, I really want to do this movie Refuge. This play- playwright, right. Jessica Goldberg, and right. has the path. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, can we work it out that I could do this movie where I was making probably $100 a day? <laughs> in like the boondocks or somewhere, yeah, right? In, yeah, in the Hamptons. Okay, yeah. In the boondocks outside the, outside Hamptons. the Hamptons. Not right. This is not a glamorous situation. <laughs> right, right. My agents, looking back, were probably like, oh, this girl wants to do this independent film <laughs> right. so bad. Right. Meanwhile, there's a pilot. And so I was like, I left the meeting. I was like, let's make it work Let's so I can do both. And we did. And you really said that Nanashka Khan was the first person to see that you could, your full potential yeah. of your comedic ability. She got right? me. Yeah. We got along like gangbusters. I miss working with her. I wish we could do every show together, comedy-wise, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's nice because there's two commonalities, I guess, between Don't Trust the Bee and Jessica Jones. You love your- Love my showrunner. Your showrunner. And then the other thing is that you have to figure out how to play somebody who, in a lot of ways- is quote unquote unlikable, <laughs> but more properly, I guess, just not the most sympathetic person in some way. In some ways, obviously, well, we've got to encompass both shows here. So, like, I guess, not quote unquote always likable, right? Yeah. And yet, fair enough. The audience has to like the person enough to keep watching. Did you figure out a way on Don't Trust the Bee to thread the needle there? No. Nope, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I don't know how I make, made her likable. I just played her as authentically as possible. Right. I just committed mm-hmm. and kind of got lucky that people still liked her, despite the horrible things that she was doing. <laughs> I think I did it with joy. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe, because I've thought about it a lot, and everyone asks me, yeah, yeah. I think that's why she, you still want to hang out with her. Well, you also like kind of have like a twinkle in your eye, like in a way, even if you're not, you have to do these bad things, but yet there's something about, maybe this comes back to like what quirky is, which we can't quite pinpoint, but like you don't seem like a terrible person, even if you're doing bad things. I don't know. (laughs) That's a theory. I don't know. And that, I mean, I have a, in real life, I'm very optimistic and very positive, right. aggressively positive. Right. And maybe there's like a little bit of, of that that it comes through so, yeah. somehow. But I never, ever, ever once have thought like, oh, how do I do this but still remain likable? Never once has I even crossed my mind. Because how would you even begin to approach that? In I fact, guess? like yeah. if, but if I'm in that character's skin, I don't right. give a shit about being likable. Right, right, right. You just got to be true to the character. You gotta be, I just got to be true to the character. And with Chloe, with Don't Trust the Bee, that character was delicious. And so she did all of these like evil things, but with such, it's just joy. Yes. <laughs> I loved it. You guys did, I remember, some pretty edgy stuff for a show on a broadcast network. I think there was like pixelated nudity yep. and there was all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. But did the whole seeing what it's like to have to work within the confines of broadcast standards and practices and all of that, did that make you perhaps less enthusiastic about 
you know, with future projects going back to broadcast when there are these freer alternatives with like cable and as we're seeing with Jessica Jones streaming. I didn't feel that so much on Don't Trust the Bee because when I read it, I thought for sure like, oh, that's never going to make the cut. Mm -hmm. They're never going to be able to really do that. But then we did everything. What did they do? They took out bitch in the mm -hmm, title right. and called it B. And to be honest, <laughs> right. that's for the best. It rhymes. Because people yeah. would call me the B on the right, street. Right, right, You know what I mean? Maybe I don't want people walking around <laughs> like, hey, the bitch, the bitch, but, you know, which is fun. Right. But it really didn't get watered down to the point where you felt like anything was sacrificed. The right. jokes were still pretty hard. Yeah. It did set the bar high for a comedy yeah. for me. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I'm a fan. I like her writing. I like how edgy it is. I like how it pushed the envelope that much. So what happened, because when we did that 2012 interview, I remember, I was just rereading the transcript, I'm congratulating you on the show being picked up for a second season, Yeah. and then what the hell happened? I don't know. I don't know where they put it. They didn't promote it, and they moved the time slot, I think, 45 times. So they and actually I'm not exaggerating, aired... they actually did. <laughs> oh my God. No, they like, moved it like no, three so times. We, we, but like, you shot the, the additional episodes, Yeah. and were they just burned off at times when people weren't paying attention or they just never aired? I think that they moved time slots. I think something happened, maybe, what was going on then? Was it an election? 20, like 2012, I guess, yeah. I think we got preempted a couple of times. And yeah. then, just so we got a lot of bad luck. Did you feel like, I would be a little pissed off yeah, about this. Yeah, I was devastated. Because it's like your first time. I was devastated. Anchoring a show. Yep. And it was good. And it was good. And I would just imagine, now we can talk about this because we know it's worked out, but like at the time, if I were you, I might be thinking to myself, on top of this sucking, who's to say there is going to be another opportunity to right. lead a show? Was that a concern of yours that like maybe this was my shot or did you feel confident there would no, be No, because I, I work hard and I keep working hard and I've been like scrappy and doing it since I was 15 years old mm -hmm. and I just keep showing up. Mm -hmm. And you hear no a lot. You hear no most of the time, but you keep showing up. So mm -hmm. the show getting canceled was a bummer, but it wasn't, I didn't, it wasn't a death sentence. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so what was the immediate aftermath of, of the cancellation, but before Jessica Jones enters the picture? So the show, I guess... Ended in 2013. Yeah. Jessica Jones goes on and or streams out in 2015. Yeah. So there wasn't a huge amount of time. And in that period, I saw you popped up on the blacklist in an episode. I think you did the it's movie the Big Eyes. Movie. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Not too shabby. Not bad. I did but, a string of independent films. Yeah. No, it's all all good things. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just wondering what your mindset was having. I started my production company, Silent Machine. Silent Machine. Let's get it out there. So you. We're not like down in the dumps. No, because I had opportunities. Right. I was down in the dumps, yes, and I was devastated. I was depressed. I was very sad because I loved that show. But I started getting more offers right away. Mm -hmm. They weren't as good as Don't Trust the Bee, mm -hmm. or they were like watered down versions, or they were so different. And you know, I I started to develop my own stuff. Nanachka Khan and I were developing something else okay. that someday we'll whatever yeah, we'll revisit. Yeah. I started my production company. I signed a deal at Universal for a couple of years. And I just kept hustling, man, you know, <laughs> paving my own way. And I was like, okay, well, if that didn't work, what else are we going to do? I didn't roll over and die. And I did, like, get, I signed on to do a couple pilots mm -hmm. and then got really specific about what I wanted to do for myself. And sometimes you just have to sit back and be like, okay, I'm in the rat race. I'm in it. Like, balls are in the air. Like, what do I really, really want? Like, let's, like, figure out what I really want. 
And I kind of put it out there and put it on my refrigerator. And eventually Jessica Jones showed up. And there she was. What was on your refrigerator? I wanted to do a dark, gritty, edgy drama on either Netflix or HBO. There you go. Not bad. What, that's a, so vision boards work yeah, or whatever. Yeah, I so. I did that with the Tim Burton, too. Did you? I really wanted to work with Tim Burton, so I put it on my fridge. Took 10 years, though. That <laughs> really? That's how long yeah, you were? Yeah, it takes a while. Wow. All of it. Well. Put some shit on your fridge now. I was going to say, well, what's on, what's on the fridge now? What's on the fridge now? I, 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 I can't say. You got to keep it. Yeah, no, I We don't want to jinx it. I hear you. All right. So Jessica Jones is, if I, I'm not a, a comic expert, but my understanding is it basically is an offspring of the Marvel comic Alias, yes. which has no relation to the Jennifer Garner TV no, show. No, absolutely none. How did you first hear about it? And while you were hoping for a Netflix star kind of thing, when you first heard about this, were you able to wrap your head around that this could be that? When I first got the call about the audition, I knew nothing about it. Okay. Just like, oh, Marvel and Netflix superhero show. I'm like, well, I'm not going to get that, but I'll go. I'll go to the audition. I want to be in the game. Did you I like get to up show to wear up. A costume? No, there is no costume. No, I know, but I'm thinking at that point you didn't know anything about. You I just didn't know superhero. I didn't know anything, and right. then I got. They sent over some signs that were secret, and I looked. And I was like, oh, interesting. And then I looked up the comic books a bit and saw how edgy it was. The mm-hmm. first word is fuck. <laughs> I was like, Into, whoa, Always what is a good this? Sign, yes. Yeah, that's a good sign for me. <laughs> I was like, what is this? Right. And then I got a couple of dummy sides, which ended up being in the episode one, season one. And they were so loaded with subtext. I was like, what is going on? This is really good. And she was so drunk and she was so like <laughs> hardcore and cool. And very. there were moments where she was so vulnerable. She was about to collapse. And other times where she was so strong. I was really blown away. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, I thought I was going to do season two of Fargo. I was up for Kirsten Dunst's part. Oh, my God. I have not come across that anywhere. That's interesting. No, because I haven't talked about it. Wow. And so I went in for that and kind of went down the line with that and was super into it. I thought, I bet this is my gig. And I got a call like, okay, Fargo's not going to go any further, but you're in the mix for Jessica Jones. And I was like. That thing, I, that superhero <laughs> thing I auditioned for a month ago and I haven't heard anything. Oh my god! That's what happened. And meaning, when you hear that you're in the mix, and I'm, I'm like, what does that mean? Because with Marvel and and Netflix, I guess they're very careful about what they do. Meaning that you probably had to go through some hoops to just lock it down, right? Yeah, I had to go through a lot of hoops. I had to screen test and all that stuff. So the, like the days of going of getting my straight offer. <laughs> We're out the window. But then, again, this was not your conventional this was not, show. And, the, and by the way, this is something that everybody should know. The good stuff you go out and fight for. Right. The right. good stuff, like, you go out and you fight for and you screen test. You do whatever you got to do. Do you know how many people you were up against? I don't know. Melissa says I was never really up against anybody, but she might just be telling me that. Well, that's good. That's good. So but, Melissa is Melissa Rosenberg. Yeah, Melissa Rosenberg. had been the head writer on Dexter, Dexter which is another pretty dark, dark uh, show. situation. And had you ever dealt with her before? I know. So when I heard I was in the mix, we were like, okay, what's going to happen? That dragged out for a little longer. So then I went in. I had a meeting with Melissa and Jeff Loeb, the head of Marvel, and they let me read the first First two scripts in a room like this, locked the door, <laughs> took away my phone, and it was that meeting where I was like, I have to, I have to play this part. This is my part. This is me. Come on. This I'm good, I can do this. And I was terrified that I actually couldn't do it. What part scared you the most? It's just not like me in real life at all. And so I had to really like build a whole person from like the way she stands, the way she leans, the way she walks. Her, where her voice lives in her body. I mean, I, it was like a, I play with a different vocal register with Jessica because she's got so much trauma and so much weight of the world on her shoulders. It's a full overhaul. 
Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, have any of these other parts that we've talked about ever demanded as much of you? No, not even close. Jessica Jones is the most demanding script that ever came across my desk. Wow. And she was in every single frame of season one. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And it's a good time to point out, I think it dates back to with movies when they used to have, like, a comic book inspired movie in the early days of movies. It was like the B movie or it was the serial before the main movie or whatever. So they were always sort of treated as second class citizens that you don't necessarily take all that seriously. And maybe there wasn't as much invested in making them. But that's obviously changed a lot on the big screen last few years. And then certainly here as well. I mean, were you yourself at all the kind of person who was a little snobby about comic book related material? Or did you go into this already as a convert? to the idea that they could be really good. I didn't really know anything about comic books. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my genre that I was like watching Mm -hmm. or reading. I wasn't exposed to comic books. But when I met with Melissa and she talked, she talked about the show like a straight drama. She never talked about it in those terms. She talked about it like a straight drama, a character driven, a psychological character study. Yeah. Like Homeland. Mm -hmm. Like she talked about it like Dexter. Mm -hmm. And that's what the conversation always has been. It's what the vibe has been around the show. That's how we approach the show. Yeah. So that's what I went into. That was my impression. I went in already imprinted that that's what we were doing. So that's how I read it also. For me, there was no question mark or no stigma. I didn't yeah. even assign that to it because this, and then I got the scripts and it's just one scene after another. Totally different color, totally different vibe. Every time she's with a new. A new character, you see something else from her, a different side from her. There was just so much to do. I like, I've never read anything that got to do everything. Right. It was. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be like the funny one, the cracking the jokes. Oh, now I'm going to be the straight one, and my friend's going to crack the jokes. Or I'm going to be like the comic relief. Or I'm going to be like whatever. This was a character that was everything. Well, yeah, like literally, because you have her as she is today, post everything she's been through, but she also has to put on so many different masks to deal with potential clients or just get things achieved out in the world. Totally. And then in season two, even we have the flashback where that must have been the greatest challenge of all because this is a totally different person than the person that you're normally playing. It felt like a totally different project. Free trauma, free everything, right? Yeah. It was awesome because... I already built Jessica. I know what she looks mm-hmm. like. And we keep I keep digging into her and going further and throwing myself even more. But I know what she looks like. Now, how do I strip back a few of her layers and see what, what did she look like before this specific thing happened? And I always wondered and, and, and wanted to explore when Jessica became so dark. When was that thing that she, why is she like this? Right. There has, like, let's see it. Mm-hmm. And we, I feel like in that flashback episode, you got to see it. And I loved it. And when I first read it, I was like, oh, maybe another actress would, should play this part because it's 10 years ago. I would need six weeks to figure out even how she leans against that wall. And obviously they were like, that's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> and so I hunkered down. I worked with Marjorie on that episode a lot. Yeah. And which was amazing because she knew me when I was 10 right. years younger. Oh, my God. And so that was really fun for us to play with. And I just went through and made everything really specific. I changed the way she walks. I changed the vocal register, all of that, different little hairdo. And it was so fun for me and so creatively exciting to get to to 
be on a show where you're playing the same character right. and just do something completely different. No, it's amazing. I know like every person who's in the mix is identify the episode that they'd like to be, you know, kind of considered when uh, in any time of year. I don't think it's possible to do a lot better than uh, that. So you I know. think episode 11 is my favorite. Well, please yeah, share why that is, because that's another great one. But like for you, that would be the one that you would go with. <laughs> I would if if it's my favorite episode of the well of them all right a couple of reasons David Tennant is in the episode Mm -hmm. but it's almost like that of course he is such a affecting factor for Jessica right but we push Jessica through a season two darker and darker and deeper into a hole and deeper into a hole and in episode 11 she is in the hole right and she breaks and she has to fight her way out so it's like scene after scene of like fire and like being like broken apart and pushed to her limits Mm -hmm. pushed to her limits her her whole conflict in season two is she hates herself she thinks she's a murderer she doesn't want to kill people. She's so conflicted. Like, am I a murderer? Did I do the right thing? I And she's also like, has the responsibility of these powers. She knows having powers means you should do something. And she doesn't want to do something. She hates herself too much. So she's dealing with all of this conflict. And then she kills somebody. And there she is. Everything that she's been fighting and conflicting and all of this back and forth. It's just like, it's all confirmed that she is as awful as she thinks. Even though you might think it would sort of free her from some of her demons, it actually just adds to the pile. Yeah, because she she kills a guard. Mm-hmm. It's self-defense. He's beating the shit out of her. Right. But her strength, she kill you know. Right. She kills him. And in, in that darkness, in that depth of like, like as low as she can go, she's so low that her biggest tormentor, Kilgrave, comes back in her mind to haunt her. She's so stuck and really needs somebody in real life like she would be completely fucked right and she has nobody to like pull her out of it and in the in the end of the episode she has to dig so deep and pull herself out of it and she does mm-hmm. and that's so empowering and so exciting and she says to like this hatred she has to her, for herself he is a mirror image of what, how she feels about herself and so she says to him like I'm not that I know I'm not that because I feel bad mm-hmm. and that means I'm more powerful than you ever were and so she, Jessica Jones like picks herself <laughs> up, and I just love that for her. I love that for the character. And so for me, for episodes, for seasons one and two, like that is like I think the start, the start of the next chapter for Jessica. Oh, that's great. And I I want to like step back for a second if we can because the thing that is almost unfathomable for a lot of people is that just to set some context here in 2015, two years before society's reckoning about sexual misconduct that started with the Harvey Weinstein expose. Melissa added sexual assault as one of Kilgrave's crimes that he's he's committed. She had you locate a sexual assault victim in a fancy hotel to go in and sort of intervene. And she had you as Jessica utter the words, quote, change public perception and victims will come forward, close quote. Then during season two, which also was written and fully shot before October 2017 when when the real world stuff started to come out. We find out that Trish, Jessica's best friend and a former teen actress, I guess, had been a victim of sexual misconduct by a filmmaker herself. This this is crazy. This is all you guys were all entirely ahead of what was coming. And I think that maybe it's because we're now just in the last month seeing the first episodes of the show since that all began to come out that this is sinking in with people. But like, 
How do you explain this? I honestly, Melissa Rosenberg can speak more eloquently about it, but sometimes we're like, Melissa, how do you, how is our show like lining up with all of these social conversations? And she, she says, because it's not new. Mm-hmm. That's her thing. Yeah. It's not new. These things have been happening forever. It's not new information. <laughs> well, you, you said in another interview, quote, everything that's gone on has caused everyone, myself included, to do an inventory of their lives, an inventory of their experiences and their careers, especially at the beginning of your career, early 20s, when you still look like a teenager, close quote. Did your inventory turn up anything that you had that you now look at differently? And does that allows you to even in some ways, maybe even understand your character in a different way? Well, I think, for, you know, for Jessica Jones in this storyline specifically and how what's going on with Trish affects her is similar, I think, to my reaction and my friends' reactions, everyone's reactions to what's going on in real life is there's a lot of sympathy and a lot of empathy and a relatability that fires you up. With Jessica, since she's a victim of sexual assault and she also loves her best friend and her sister, carries a lot of guilt around because she wasn't able to help her more as a child. Mm-hmm. There was scenes in season one where she's on the wrong side of the bathroom door while she's being Trish is being abused by her mother and Jessica can't do anything. That's something that, that she struggles with. So now being reminded or having to like deal with this again and the fact that her this happened to her sister pisses her off. Mm-hmm. This storyline didn't happen to Jessica Jones, but as her sister, she relates and she cares for her and she f- punches a hole in the guy's car for it. She's fired up about it. Mm-hmm. I haven't been through what the women that are so, so bravely spoken out about. I haven't been through that, but I have empathy and I have sympathy and it, it was heart- breaks my heart. And so uh, that's how I feel about it. And then you read, you know, there was an amazing essay that there was a a female writer had had a lot of writers, obviously, have written these great pieces about their experiences in writer's rooms or they're experiencing selling a script. And someone says, like, oh, did you have help with your script or, oh, you look pretty. Like, of course, those are things that you hear and those are things you're just so conditioned to feel are normal in the beginning of your career. So, of course, like you read that stuff and you're like. God, I wish I can go back and like have a better comeback mm-hmm. for that uh, that guy who said like, oh, oh, you wrote a script, you did a good job. Did somebody help you with it? Instead, you giggle through it. You're like, oh, haha, no, I did it myself. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know. It's normalized. Right. And so now that these things are being highlighted, it help it like forces you to be like, man, it's frustrating and it sucks. Yeah. But hindsight's twenty twenty. Of course, you'd love to go back and like have a better comeback or. Well, but I think you've said that the thing that, you know, in the aftermath of season one, as people were discovering that sometimes even after the Harvey stuff started, it was resonating with people definitely, right? So you started to get feedback from people that was maybe even different than, I mean, I think even pre-Harvey, it was connecting the show. Jessica Jones was really connecting on a different level than, you know, some, it's like a dog whistle. Some people are hearing a different pitch watching the same thing as other people totally right? and that's an, that's really amazing like so that is a really cool part of sitting where i sit when i'm meeting fans or like talking to different journalists or whatever hearing what what people take away from the show but what i felt after season one because i always look at jessica jones like this is my acting role and how do i like do my best acting right. my best performance so where's the work the work the work the work that's it and sometimes when you're doing a long job like this 
there's different chapters of it. Mm-hmm. Then you finish it, you step back, and then you sit and talk about it with people, and you hear how it's affecting other people, and then it takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new life, which is really cool. Yeah. So it went from being like my acting part to be like, wow, this show actually means something to people and actually matters to people. Last October, I, I met a therapist at a wedding, and she said, after a couple of glasses of wine, she told me, she was like, you know, Kristen, I have to tell you, like, Jessica Jones comes up in the therapy sessions with women often. Wow. And that's so incredibly moving and huge to me, and I take that very seriously. Yeah. It's not every day that you're on a show that affects women in that way. I meet people all the time, and they'll tell me, like, sometimes in tears, mm-hmm. it's heavy, mm-hmm. that they felt like, if Jessica Jones can do it, so can I. And I'm like, God, that's like, that is so much more than, like, me having a cool acting job. Well, and we should just note also that you guys received a pretty major honor after season one. This was the Peabody Award, and it's and the citation says, quote, for deploying a popular genre to ask unpopular questions about power and consent, for constructing such vivid and compelling characters and putting them through the ringer, Marvel's Jessica Jones earns a Peabody Award, close quote. So that's, I mean, they don't give those out to, <laughs> you know, everybody. Yeah. So We were so honored to get that and, and to be recognized in that way. And Marvel's never, never yeah. got anything like that. No. So I think what Melissa's been able to do is is make our, our this show in, in, incredibly timely and and relatable and grounded in this superhero genre. It's sort of it has done something for the genre that you didn't quite expect. In a lot of superhero projects, the superhero does great things that help others, but pays a personal price in some way for doing it. Drains them in some way. For you, you've got to occupy the headspace of this character for months on end in order to make the show possible for these people to have these sorts of reactions. How is that for you? <laughs> <laughs> this is why I also took up knitting. <laughs> it's dark. You know, yeah. I'm, I love the show and I, and there are things about the character and the makeup that practically make it possible because like she's not beautiful and she's not glamorous and she's not in high heels and she's very down and dirty. That gives me like a lot of time back right there where I can just focus on like the headspace and then pulling myself out of it. It's it's a heavy load to carry. It's sometimes it's really depressing and sometimes I have to shake it off and I find ways to do that with like knitting. I got my cute dog, I got my cute boyfriend, <laughs> you know, but I I do go to those places. I sometimes used to stay there for too long. Every once in a while, you, you know, like you don't have the maybe you could have used another day to like bounce back from it, you know, in your real life when you get bad news or deal with like it's grief. It takes a toll. So sometimes it's like heavy. It's a heavy character for sure. I'm amazed that even if it was a light, fun, happy-go-lucky character, the amount that you accomplish when you're not on that show in between season one and season two, you want to share what you I wrote did. a novel. You wrote a novel, Bonfire, right? Yeah. This was very well received. You're also, we mentioned the production company, Silent Machine. What do you have going on there? I have a show that I hope gets picked up at Pop. Um, we shot the pilot, which is a half-hour comedy, which is really funny. Pop has has Shit's Creek. I love that. I was gonna say They're... that show should be winning every single it award. It's so great. This is the thing. It's like it's so it's the best comedy out there. It's the what price of better? peak TV, I guess. Like people don't have time to watch everything, and so they assume if it's on a network they that heard. they don't know of yeah. necessarily. But it's you're right. It's the funniest. I love Pop. So yes. that was part of my pitch, yeah. by the way, when we sold a show there. I'm like, it's just great. so you know, yeah. I'm like your biggest supporter already. <laughs> I'm getting all these people to watch Shit's 
Creek. Right. So it's called The Demons of Dorian Gunn. And it's kind of, honestly, it's kind of like Don't Trust the Bee Meets Ghostbusters. Oh, that's cool. It's super that's fun cool. and funny and fresh and new. So you wrote it, will you? No, I produced it. Produced so it, it was a spec script that okay. was submitted to me three and a half years ago. Oh, my God. And my company. So it's something, just, you know, like I was yeah. saying, because you hear no, but you keep showing up. Yeah. So that was something we shopped around. I got a lot of passes on it. And then finally, like, that, this happened at Pops. So you just never know. Evan Greenspan and Brandon Scott Jones wrote it. They're two young writers from New York in the comedy scene. And they are so fantastic and so fresh and so fun. It's like, I feel like it's like meeting like Avatar when he's young and just yeah. starting out. Like yeah. just a real specific brand. He's nothing like that. I'm just no, the first thing that came mean. to my I mean, mind. Yeah, but yeah. they have a really great work ethic. They turn stuff around. They're not jaded. It's really exciting. And, you know, it's not every network where you can get baby writers an opportunity like this. And so fingers crossed. So that was all between season one and two. Also between season one and, and two. And I think that was before season one even. Even before. Something yeah. like the, the original. Yeah, uh, the original spec script. So I, I I tend to always have like a lot of irons in the fire and you sort of see what sticks. But the other thing, which I, I wanted to just kind of clarify from my own understanding, The Defenders, oh, yeah, the Defenders. was between season one and season two. And you guys always knew that that was going to happen. Yeah. Okay, because okay, that so, brings all your guys together. Totally. Okay. So when I was yeah. back in like testing for Jessica Jones, they yes. really put me through the ringer. And part of the reason why it was such a big commitment right. for them, like a big financial decision to cast somebody who's going to be in the face of Jessica Jones and also one of the stars of The Defenders. Two right. shows picked up, Yes. which is so rare for an actor. Yeah. I feel like it never happens. I'm so, it was so big. So that was always built in to go in the time that it went from like October to March. It was built into all of all four actors contracts. And so it just worked out that we did season one and then I had a pretty good healthy chunk of change off a good hiatus Mm -hmm. and did the Defenders and then went straight into Jessica Jones. No break from right after the Defenders. Same crew like finished on like a Thursday, went home, took a shower, came back with wet hair. (laughs) And do you anticipate further reunions of the group like that? I have no idea. I don't know. I, I'm i always trying to figure out, like, what are they doing? I right. wonder what makes the most business sense for right, Netflix. Right. I'm always trying to figure <laughs> out how they would do it because all the shows, obviously, it takes a long time to make a show and they all kind of go simultaneously. Yeah, it's a lot of juggling. Yeah, it's a lot of juggling. So I, I, I'm always trying to figure out, like, if they'll do it again. I had a great experience doing it. It was really fun. I love those guys. Yeah. It's also so rare that as an actor, you can truly relate to another person's experience. And we're right. all we You're all work right. with the same crew, same camera operators. Is that right? With yeah. all all those shows? Yeah. Well, I think there's like usually like two going yeah, at yeah, once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like maybe Charlie and I will share share a crew. That's and Mike Coulter was on season one of Jessica Jones, so he knows, you know. Well, the other thing that I I was struck by reading about that was that each of these shows have their own showrunners, writers, whatever. Yeah. But then Defenders has its own group who actually have the confidence and friendship it seems of the other people who could easily be protective and defensive about the things that they've been working on and yet there seems to be a level of trust and cooperation that is major i think that they also were writing in the same building so they can kind of go over and be like is it okay if we do this but their whole thing so the defenders takes place over the course of a couple of days Mm. and i think the whole it was like an an, an adventure that happens and then you leave the car where it was parked (laughs) That's a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. I've Great. heard that several yeah, times. I love that. So a lot of the bigger, you know, 
character developments. Like we didn't in Defenders, we didn't get into like the psychology right, right, right. of like Jessica and right. having murdered somebody. You know what I mean? <laughs> Last few things, if I can, are just big picture. It's pretty amazing. You guys did something that I don't think anyone. Maybe there were like a few other shows before you that, but very recently that had also done like Queen Sugar, where every episode of your second yeah. season was directed by a woman. Yeah, totally. How did that happen? Well, Melissa Rosenberg and Netflix. Season one was directed half by women. And, you know, S.J. Clarkson did our pilot and episode two. So it was already so in our DNA. The show is very female. And so Melissa went into season two wanting to hire 50% women. They started interviewing people and they didn't have to look very far to find all these amazing women with really sexy credits and and so qualified. We weren't doing them any favors. Melissa's like, we had to beg these women. Like, they were busy. Like, we have Deborah Childs doing Game of Thrones. Like, we have great directors coming through. And Mickey Spiro... Uda Braithwaite, who's done several episodes, I've now worked with her three times, mm-hmm. and so I think Ali Goss at Netflix was like, "Okay, well, we have all this big pile of women. Why don't we just do all 13? Right, right. And Melissa, I think, was even kicking herself for not coming up with it herself. <laughs> I would say, I've worked mostly with women, so I didn't notice the difference yeah. as much as maybe like Carrie Ann Moss did, or even Rachel Taylor did, or the crew. Right, because you were coming off Nanachka and Jessica Goldberg and, and Gold- yeah. everyone. Melissa right. Rosberg season one, right. S.J. Clarkson. Right. I've worked with mostly women. Right. I've even worked with Amy Heckerling. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. So I didn't really think about it as much until until the end, where I was like, "This is so cool that we did this." Yeah. And yep. there's also like a shorthand when you like have to do like more sensitive subject where you can just say, "Hey, let's just like real quick, what do you want to do? Let's right. do this in and right. out." Right. You can have that conversation with a with a woman. And I, I think that it informs the way the show looks. Yeah. Netflix and Marvel can certainly afford to promote a good show, and they are very much promoting Jessica Jones if people happen to be near Times Square yeah. or downtown Hollywood or any major metropolitan city in the world right now. I think you are very largely plastered all over it. I took a photo of the one in Hollywood yesterday and tweeted out that, you know, upcoming episode, you can figure out who it's going to be. Okay. Um, but I just wonder... i that and retweet it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder, though, you know, we see for for Jessica that she's not totally comfortable with people finding out who she is and what she can do and being thrust into the public eye in the way that she sometimes is. For you, I mean, it's not like it's just out of the blue that this is happening, but this is on a scale that I think very few people have ever experienced to be that front and center. And because it's Netflix all at once, this is happening, you know, March 8th, it went everywhere. So how are you feeling about, you know, your ability to just go out for a walk or do things like, has your life markedly changed since six years ago? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes and no. Like I hand, I sort of, maybe I stay in a little bit more than I used to because you have to be like prepared and you want to be your best self. There's definitely no handbook that teaches you how to, you know, be recognizable. I love my job and I love the show and I'm proud of it. I love my character. I love that I get to do good acting work and that's really like it. And they throw my face on a billboard for two weeks great I love it and you know I don't take it for granted it doesn't happen every day where you have a show that you love doing and then they also edit it well and they market it well it's like lightning in a bottle and I've been around for a very long time 
<laughs> and I've had my favorite show canceled. And I ha- you have a lot of opportunities that you want to be the thing and aren't the thing. And, and now that it's here and this show has worked and it makes me happy, I feel really grateful. And so, like, I'll do a selfie with the billboard because I know in a week it'll be in the garbage. Right. Right. No, I always hope, I kind <laughs> of always hope that people, you know, that person on the billboard is not taking it for granted because that is a pretty totally. cool thing. One day you're on a billboard and two weeks later it's in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last question is just because we that last interview was six years ago. I want to end by asking you, all right, let's say hopefully it won't be six years before I see you again here. But if it is six years and we sit down and do this again, where do you hope your life and career will be at that point? Is there a specific goal? Is there, would you be happy if it was still doing Jessica Jones and being received at this level? Just basically up to you. Where would you like things I to I mean, be? I hope I get to continue doing work that challenges me and, and is new. I love to, con- I want to continue to diversify. You know, I have, I wrote my novel. I yes. have my production company. I hope I have shows on the air. Hopefully in six years, I will have directed several things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I like to diversify and keep it challenging myself. And I work really hard because I love it. I love it. I I hope that I am back in six years. You will be. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.